You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michael Duffy, opinions editor at large at The Post. And our guest today is David Gergen, a man who needs no introduction. He was the founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard's Kennedy School. He was an advisor to four, at least four, uh, American presidents. And he's the author of a new book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. Dave Gergen, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Michael. It's good to see you again. Great to be with you. Uh, Dave, tell us why you wrote this book, just to start off the conversation. Sure. Well, it's been sort of building up. I've been teaching leadership courses at the Kennedy School for almost a quarter century now. And you know, I've acquired some thoughts and reflections on that, as well as for my own uh, background. And I've, I've reached the age where you, you really want to pass on to a new generation uh, some of the things you've learned. Maybe you can help them a little bit. And uh, I enjoyed writing it, too, because it brought back so many memories, uh, not only from history, but from personal experiences. And I love good stories. I think they help to tell a narrative about our lives and about the perils we now face as a country. Well, let's talk about some of those presidents you worked for. David's uh, worked for four presidents, President Nixon, President Ford, President Reagan, and of course, President Clinton. There may have been other more informal conversations along the way, but we, four is enough. That's, that's close to as, as many as anyone has ever had. Um, uh, so let's start at the beginning, Dave. Uh, uh, President Nixon, just talk, re to remind us what role you played in that White House and uh, uh, speak a little bit about his leadership strengths and weaknesses. Sure, well, I, after going to law school, I went in the Navy for three and a half years. And uh, toward the end of that period, uh, I was called back to work on draft reform um, because we, the President Nixon had ordered up a random lottery, the first random lottery, and they uh, they got they were it was botched, and they were looking for a young team to come in and help them, and not only to have a, a random lottery but also to reform other and change the loopholes, close the loopholes in the draft system. So I, I was honored to do that. Uh, that process was overseen by a good friend of mine, a person I went to law school with, a roommate, who was in the West Wing and uh, of the, working in the West Wing of the White House. And we worked together then on draft reform. But then he introduced me to the White House crowd. And then as I was coming out of the Navy, I thought I was going home to North Carolina. And I was interviewing there at the Institute of Government, Chapel Hill, um, when I got a call asking me if I'd, uh, if I'd come to the White House and actually take a job uh, working there as an assistant to someone named Ray Price, who was then head of the speech writing and research team, a big group, about 50 people. And he was looking for someone to be, uh, I don't know, administrator type, administrative type. He hired me. He did not know I was a blockhead when it came to administration. That was one of my great, that's one of my great weaknesses in life. Um, but I went to work for Ray, and then he eventually uh, asked to move over to a counselor role uh, about a year or so in, and, and Nixon, asked me, and Bob Haldeman asked me if I would run the speech writing and, and uh, research team, which I did for about, I guess, the last year and a half. And one of the big, big questions, of course, during that time was, what happened in Watergate? What was the real truth? Uh, are, are we guilty of this? Did the other, you know, is this made up? Haldeman or Ehrlichman would tell me, you know, Bob Woodward making all of this stuff up. But I also, I, I got to know Bob. We had been a year apart at Yale, um, and we got to, got to know each other in Washington. So I had some friends there in the administration, and I went to work there for a year because I, I had voted for Hubert Humphrey, my first vote. And I told them that, and they said, well, that's not an advertisement, but we do need an alternative perspective around here. And that's what Ray told me. 
And uh, so let's have you come in for a year. Well, it turned out I stayed three and a half, uh, much longer than I expected. I was there on the final goodbyes, you know, as, a, as a, a Nixon's walked out to the helicopter and waved goodbye. Um, and it was, a, it was a big learning experience. I frankly thought, uh, Michael, having worked for Nixon, I was done in, in American public life. You know, there was a sense inside the White House that we were playing like the, uh, the, white, the, the white Sox, the Black Sox of 1923, who threw the World Series and never, they, the players never came back again. Well, there was that sense that we would never come back. But things were, things were in flux, and I eventually wound up going over to work at the Treasury Department for Bill Simon, and then I was asked to come back to the White House for, to work for President Ford. Uh, Don Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney asked me to come back, which I did, and I was way there for, with Ford for a year plus. Would you say Ford was um, uh, not the leader that Nixon was, or in some ways a better leader? Oh, uh, Let's put it this way. Nixon was a much better strategist, the best I've, I've seen in public life. Uh, Winston Churchill used to argue that someone who looked at, read history and looked back back could, could, could see farther into the future. Well, that, that was Nixon. He loved to read. He was, he was a good strategist. He worked closely with Henry Kissinger on you know, the China, Russia, splitting him apart. Uh, uh, and had that been all there was to his presidency, he would have been a fairly good one. Uh, but as you know, Michael, he, as the Washington Post really uh, uncovered, uh, he had demons inside him that he had never learned to control. Uh, and they did him in. Uh, David Frost had, a, had an interview with him after Watergate was over. He said, how did that happen? Why? What happened? And Nixon said, I gave my enemies a sword and then they ran me through. And that's, that was true. He did give his enemies a, a sword. Um, and he was the author of his own demise. He had to go. It was a scandal. He had to go. Did you, uh, you wrote in the book that you um, found Gerald Ford, certainly he had no demons, but you wrote that he was squishy. Uh, what did you mean and how did that manifest itself? Well, squishy means, I think I probably, I borrowed that from Margaret Thatcher probably. Uh, she, they, were, they talked about, you know, some conservatives are hard and some are squishy. And the ones who are squishy are the ones who are seen by their other conservatives as too willing to work with the other side. Um, and Jerry Ford was 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 part of that group. There were a lot of a lot of conservative uh, Republicans wanted to, to bring him down, and they were they and they got Kissinger. They got him out of the. You remember he was they they managed to get him out of the premises, um, and uh, that worked, but at detriment to the country. So, but I but the thing that was antithesis about Ford to Nixon was that Ford was honest, uh, and he he felt that. Um, transparency and trust were the glue that held the system together. Uh, and he tried to practice that. And what I found, Michael, about leaders is that the, the followers, the people who are working for them, they take their cues from the leader. If you're, if you're working for Richard Nixon, there was a tendency to cut corners and tell uh, lies. If you're working for Jerry Ford, honest as the day is long, your tendency was to tell the truth. And and then it was, a, it was in the Nixon days, yeah, there were there was a lot of resentments and animosities among the group. On the four days, we were a pretty happy bunch. Uh, it worked out pretty well. Uh, the next president you worked for, of course, was Ronald Reagan, who was in his time and still seen as a revolutionary uh, president, uh, but also one of uh, great positive disposition. Um, yeah. What what talk a little bit about that combination, uh, since we don't see them uh, usually in tandem. Yeah. 
Well, it, uh, Reagan, in, in my judgment, um, I, and he was more conservative than I was. I, I, I'm pretty liberal on social issues, uh, for each, uh, pro-choice, for example. Um, I want but to, I want to. No, don't ask. Yeah. Um, but but anyway, I thought Reagan turned out to be the best president, best leader as president uh, since Jack Kennedy. Um, there was an equanimity about him a, uh, that, you know, he didn't have to be president. He wasn't a driven man the way Nixon was, and to a degree, Bill Clinton it turned out to be. Um, but rather, he was he was pretty happy with life. He didn't he didn't need the presidency in order to feel he had a good life. Um, and I think that it relaxed him a little bit. But I think the shooting actually transformed him in a public eye. Before that, people thought maybe Reagan was, uh, you know, he was seen to be a nice guy. But was he tough enough to be president? Uh, and then he was shot and he, and he took that bullet and walked away with a smile. And that made people, convinced a lot of Americans, guy's pretty tough, you know. He, and uh, and he, had, he had what I think was perhaps more respect for the office of the president, president that I've seen in a long time. Uh, you know, when he was, and when he was shot, he intentionally got out of the car on the side that the press couldn't see him. And then he, he, got, he stood up, he buttoned his coat, he walked back around the car to where they could see him, and he crossed, he crossed the street there the, the, and at the, in the emergency area. Um, and people saw him doing that, walking over. And then when they, when they could no longer see him, he collapsed into the arms of the surgeons. And it was important for him to send a message that the, that the president wasn't you know, down groveling on the floor, been shot. And you know the United States was still in good hands and that was important. I, I think he had his eye on the, on the big important things um, and, and did pretty well by him. Now he was the father of a lot of modern conservatism, but the conservatism we see from Trump is vastly different from Reagan. And I, I think Reagan will be among the first to condemn it. Um, he, didn't, he didn't like the radical wing of the party very much. He didn't like people who came in and tried to bully him into doing things um, because he wanted to do it his own way. Uh, and I think that's one of the strengths that he had. Um, but again, coming back to there were you know, a lot of lessons to be learned from each of these each of these presidents. Talk a little bit more about this element of the Republican Party, which, as you know, has been present for decades. Uh, uh, yeah. But most of the all the Republicans you worked for were conscious of it, and I wouldn't say tamped it down or kept it in a box, but they were aware that it was something that had to be managed. Um, yes. How conscious was that? Even even in the 70s, how conscious were were Republican well, leaders of this uh, element of the party that has now become the dominant element? Well, yeah, it, for a long time, tensions have been building up. There were, in effect, two wings to the Republican Party. There was a Barry Goldwater wing, which was gathering, uh, you know, uh, momentum in this in the Southwest and in much of the rest of the South. And then there was the establishment wing, the establishmentarians. Uh, and they're mostly Northeast, and it was, you know, people like Tom Dewey. Uh, and there, there were real breaks uh, between those two, and they went in different directions, but they were, they, they were banging heads a lot. But they, and then Eisenhower came along, and he sort of transcended that, that, uh, that view. And then and when, when Nixon, when Nixon was, uh, came in in 68, it, all that stuff came back into, into focus. I put him on the ticket put Nixon on the ticket as vice president, uh, because Nixon had come to represent that that uh, scrappy, Goldwater-ish kind of uh, view. And Eisner, uh, yeah, Western. And Eisner himself was much more, you know, uh, uh, at home, more congenial 
and a uh, more establishmentarian. You know, he'd been president of Columbia. He'd done a variety of other things, which really put him in the thick of things. And of course, he was a potential president for a long time. We wouldn't, I don't think any of those presidents could have imagined a Republican Party that exists today. Do you, David? Uh, I, well, I don't know of any of them who would accept it, which is, I think, a more important test. Uh, I, I just don't think they would have been swept up. But Barry Goldwater, at the end of the day, uh, had a lot of establishment qualities about him uh, as well. He wasn't, he wasn't, and he wasn't angry at the world. Uh, yeah, so I, 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 I do honestly believe that the Republican Party has been, in effect, taken hostage uh, by elements that, um, that t too many sort of bowed and scraped early on and, and, and let, him get, let him get away with this. And I think, I think it's done grave damage in the long run uh, to, his, to the presidency as an institution because it's become so highly, so much more politicized. That process did have long roots. I do think the process of politicization uh, really intensified in, in the 1990s um, with uh, the coming of the, uh, the, ba the baby boomers and the running the show. Uh, and, the, and the World War II veterans leaving the stage. I have always believed, Michael, that the generation that did serve us the best at, as a country was what Tom Brokaw identifies as the, as the greatest generation, was that World War II, that World War II group. They were, they were running things when I got to Washington. I thought they were splendid. I really had, a, I came away with enormous respect for them. And I, I miss them still. I thought they were just fine people. I mean, and the relationship, you know, the Dan Inouye friendship with Bob Dole, being in the same hospital together in the war in the Italian peninsula um, and becoming friends there. That, those, those friendships lasted all their lives. When I first went to see George H.W. Bush in Kennebunk, he asked me to come up for a weekend to see if I wanted to work for him. The first thing I found when I got into his house was he had a Democratic congressman staying for the weekend. They were just, they were personal friends. They weren't, they, they have different politics, but they were personal friends and didn't stand that, didn't, the friendship, you know, transcended these other things. So. I, I like that generation a lot. I felt very comfortable with them. The generations come now is, you know, uh, well, it is what it is. Uh, but I think it's, I think. Let's talk. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I, I was going to say. I, I think as a general prophet and broadening out from Trump, uh, I think we're at a stage now where in the natural course of things, uh, the people running the, the White House, the people running much of the Congress are octogenarians. There, there are people who've gone into their 90s, and I do think that, that there is a general, as a general proposition, it would be wise and helpful for the oxygenarians to uh, start turning over, to, to pass the torch to a new generation of younger uh, leaders, emerging leaders, and uh, so we can get some you fresh that, blood. You say that yes. as someone who I think is now 80 yourself, right? Yeah, as 80 years old, I can just tell you, you know, you do... You, 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 you don't have the same coordination you had before. Your mental capacity does. You, there's a, a sense that it's, it's drifting downward. You're on a downward glide path. Uh, you, uh, you, you're more forgetful. There are a lot of things that start happening. It doesn't mean you can't do a good job somewhere in an organization, but you shouldn't be running the largest, most powerful, most complex institution in the world. Uh, in a situation where you're on your own glide path, nobody knows quite what it is. Your doctors are not going to tell it to you straight, or at least won't tell the public straight. And, you know, what are we electing? We, what we know is that age can catch up with people. Look at Woodrow Wilson, how he collapsed the last two years of his presidency. 
because of his uh, because of his stroke. Uh, we, 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 we don't want to be in a position where you don't know from one week to the next whether your president is going to have health problems. It's just too much of a risk, and we will find other nations trying to take advantage of it. Uh, you've called in the course of uh, uh, publicizing the book for uh, Joe Biden not to run for a, a second term. Uh, Biden is currently 79. Um, Donald Trump is 75. I, I think Mitch is seven. Mitch McConnell is 80. I think Nancy Pelosi is 82. Yeah. Um, yes. Uh, does it is it important for Biden to step aside if everyone else who is his age stays in the game? Is it as important? That's, really, that's a really really good question. I, I I do think it's important for Biden and Trump to step aside on the presidential run. I, I think it's and if one won't do it, the other one won't do it. So it's 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 going to be a long shot, but I I think if we focus, if people begin serious people begin to focus on it, they'll tell you this is not a good idea. Uh, you know, their their age does catch up with you. Embrace it. Don't try to fight it all the time. Uh, and I I I think in the end, Joe Biden will try to do the right thing. I think they, depending on what happens on the midterms, there will be pressure on him. If if the, if the Democrats lose say, the House. Uh, there will be pressure on him anyway to 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 take a second look and not run, but it's going to be it's going to be hard. It's going to be a hard yeah. choice. Yeah, and and one, that, one of the one of the reasons it's going to be a hard choice, and you you can speak to this, I think, from your unusual perspective of having watched presidents up close, is no matter their age, uh, they don't see the stage um, very often. Uh, in fact, it's uh, I've. I wonder if it's even in their uh, ability. What do you What do you think? Is it Is it possible for for a president to just step back? Uh, yeah, no matter the age, do they, are they wired for that? What do you think? Uh, well, they're wired against it um, by by and large. Um, but there are some presidents who who don't need the office. I mean, to, to feel like they've had a, a good life. That was Ronald Reagan, and there are other presidents like Nixon who you know cling to power. Uh, and I, I think Joe Biden, you know, we'll leave it up, leave it up to him. But I, and this is not a reflection on him as a person. It's not a reflection on his character. It's not a reflection on the, the accomplishments he has racked up. Uh, it, is, it is really a, a focus on the health of the person who's in, engaged and your, your physical health, your mental health. All those things are really important as president. It is the most complex job in the world. It does require a sense of judgment that, and keen judgment. You know, Michael, the, the, the issues that come before president tend to be hard issues, hard decisions. They're usually 51-49 type decisions. You know, if it's, if it's 60-40, you, you, you don't need to spend time in the Oval Office. You just get that done. But if it's 51-49, you've got to spend a lot of time with the president trying to make sure he understands the data, understands the evidence, understands the politics, understands how to connect with the country, and understands how to deal with foreign nations. There's a lot on your plate right there. And it, a man in his 50s is so much uh, stronger and brings a more uh, vitality and often brings better judgment uh, than people who are in their 80s. And this is, again, not a reflection on sort of the person, but it is uh, simply a, a recognition that life changes as you get older. And you, if for the sake of the country, for the sake of the country, not for the sake of the person, uh, I think it would be wise to sort of think, you know, I want to support somebody else in this. 
Um, let's talk about a younger president uh, that we haven't discussed, Bill Clinton, for whom you went to work yeah. in yeah. 19, late, late 93, as I recall. Um, uh, you write in the book that when you got there, you saw a Bill Clinton you didn't recognize, one yeah. who had lost his confidence. This was about nine right. or ten months, in, as I recall, into the yeah. first term. About half a uh, Just half a, little bit, half. a little bit about that, and how did he get it back? Well, um, I had known Bill Clinton for a long time. We had been friends. I was I covered him journalistically, but more importantly, we just spent time together. Um, and uh, I was I talked to him. He called me the night he uh, declared and what he was going through. Um, and I had I had a lot of I had a lot of faith in Bill Clinton. He was, you know, he's all he's widely seen as one of the ten best governors of the 20th century. He was a very very good governor in Arkansas. It's the reason he was reelected so many times. Uh, and uh, and so I thought he brought all that strength to the White House, and he did bring it. But then he got battered in those early months. There was some, you know, he slipped on some banana peels, and he wound up you know, getting. Frankly, he would be, he was he he didn't he wasn't himself, and that's when he he and Mac McClarty, the chief of staff, reached out to me to ask me if I would come help. And I, I'm a traditionalist by heart. And when a president of the United States says, I'm in trouble, can you come help me? I, I think the appropriate answer is, uh, what time do I report? Um, and so I wanted to help him. And I, and I, I stayed longer than I expected. I, and I, but I, I did, did keep him out of my, I stayed out of the politics. Um, his politics were against Republicans. He was good about that. But in any event, it was, um, what I found when I got there was the Bill Clinton I knew, as you say, was not the same person I found in the Oval Office. He had lost his self-confidence uh, and he wasn't quite sure what to do about it. And he was floundering. And that's when he sort of reached out. He thought maybe because I had been in Washington a lot and I knew him pretty well uh, that, that I could help him find that uh, rebalance. And you know, Hillary was not in good shape at all. She was going through much the same thing. It is, it's, it's important to understand that when you go from a small state to the White House, it's very different from going from California or New York to the White House. In a small state like Arkansas or Georgia, Jimmy Carter, you're just not prepared for the, the, the complexity that you find in Washington and all the cross currents and everything else. And you need you need a little bit of, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, someone to, lead to help you sort of navigate uh, that. So anyway, uh, my thought coming in was, we don't want to try to change Bill Clinton. I learned this under, under Reagan when he was under some fire. We didn't try to change Reagan. What we tried to do was let Reagan be Reagan. And that's what I said we thought to do with Clinton. Let him be himself. Let him let him succeed at a couple of things. Create a zone around him when he has some safety. He has some psychological safety. Keep working on it just to play to these strengths. You know, he's a great speaker. He's a great this. He's great that. Play to those strengths. Let them come out. And gradually he will rec recover his self-confidence. And that's what happened. And people thought, people wrote, well, some people wrote that I'd, helped, I'd gotten him out of a ditch. I didn't get him out of any ditch. He got there himself. It was entirely, he, you know, he, he figured out what he needed to do. He had some support. We gave him some support, but he was he was the one who deserved and deserves all the credit for putting himself back out there, and he became a much better president, frankly. Um, are you still in touch with him? Uh, I haven't talked to him for a while. We we do cross paths. I see Henry periodically, uh, but the truth is, I haven't seen him for uh, some months. Do you uh, looking back on that? Uh, what advice would you have to other leaders in whatever role they they play 
when they do lose their confidence, what's the most important thing for people to remember? Would you say? Well, I, th I think it's important that they that they quietly find people who are well anchored, who are. It, it usually starts with the spouse. Uh, a, a strong spouse like a Lady Bird Johnson can, can do a lot to uh, to to anchor and to keep her husband under under better control. And Nancy played some of that role uh, with Reagan, and she also kept a, a keen eye, stern eye out for anybody who wanted to upstage Reagan in the White House. And you know, she chased Don Reagan out of there. Um, but I, but I do think you need to have. I think every every leader, frankly, of any significant organization, uh, needs to have at least one or two people uh, that he can talk straight or she can talk straight with. Some, uh, you need a quiet space. A safe space where you can you can you know let down your hair. You can tell people, share people with people, your friends, your close in friends. Uh, you know what 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 the hellishness you're going through, and get their advice. Just and just just knowing that there are one or two people out there, longtime buddies or friends or mentors, who are in your corner still. That helps a lot. It helps you to stabilize. You don't feel that you're so alone. You know, battling the world. So I want to close by asking you to make a couple of predictions. Um, one rarely visited David Gergen in the White House without having at least a minute or two at the end of an interview to uh, to to ask him to uh, look into the crystal ball. That would have been a waste of a visit. Um, uh, how how will the midterms go in your view? What's what's the likely prospect? And um, and and talk to us a little bit. And we only have a minute or two left about what you see uh, shaping up to be the field in 20, 2024. Well, I think I think we're still on glide path to, uh, to the Republicans winning the, the House. I think the Senate is more unpredictable. Uh, there's some interesting candidates out there. The chances are the Democrats may have a better chance in the Senate than in the House. Um, but on the 2024, I don't know. I think there are big, big questions on both sides of the aisle about, you know, if, if it's Trump, uh, it, you know, where does he go? He's not going to go to Pence. Uh, but who, you know, he diminishes everybody who comes at him. Is DeSantis really going to try to let the water out of uh, the bathtub on Trump? Who knows? Um, but I think that's a fascinating question. The Democratic side is even more, I think, iffy or, or questionable. There, there. If Biden decides to run, there's going to be uh, all the obvious things. I think the really interesting question becomes: If Biden decides not to run, what happens? What happens to Kamala Harris? You've got two groups in the White House around her. The best I can tell, you've got one group and who, who thinks that she would not be a good candidate, should not run as, an, as the nominee of the party. Whereas you have people, uh, there are a lot of people, especially in the black community, for whom our admiration for uh, Kamala Harris has gone way up, it's skyrocketed here in recent days, uh, and that she would be, and and to force her off the ticket would be an act of you know uh, betrayal. It's that she they, she came in as vice president, and with obviously with the possibility that she might become president because you know, uh, Biden was a you know, fairly senior older guy, uh, and so they've assumed I think that she has the inside track if if there's an opening there, but there there are just a lot of people who don't want to do that. I don't know what they're going to do about that. I don't know how they manage. Uh, to get through that without some blood being spilled on, on the floor. So in both parties, I think there's a, there's a lot of riding on this election. But for the next two years, the big issue is can Joe Biden govern if he loses the House? And I think that's going to be a very rough proposition. Last point, I know we have to go. 
last point is, at the end of the day, I think we have great barrels facing this country in the short term. I'm fairly uh, pessimistic uh, the next five years or so. The longer term seems to be much more promising. And that is what I think we've been our hopes on. The generations that are coming, whether it's X or millennials or Z, they all have something to offer. And I think the time has come to pass the torch to these younger generations. Dave Gergen, uh, you've been generous with your time. Uh, uh, I think I want to ask you just one more question real fast, and it's got to be a quick answer. Have you been surprised by the extent to which uh, Trump has consolidated his grip on the GOP since uh, last fall? Yes, very surprised. The J.D. Vance thing was like, whoa, that's an unholy alliance. And do you expect that to continue through the fall? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think Trump's going to throw the dice now. He'll, he'll win some, lose some, but he'll, he'll always be out there in front. He has a great capacity to raise money. And I think he'll continue to hold the party hostage um, as, as long as he can. If things, if things happen to his health, that, that changes the whole ballgame. David Gergen, thanks for being with us. The author of the just released Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Born. Dave, thanks so much for spending time today. Thank you, Michael. I, I enjoyed being with you again. Always good to talk to you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.